A reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the book of Jude. And I get to say something I don't normally get to say, and that is we will read the entire book of Jude this morning, all 25 verses of this wonderful book, shorter than many of the passages that we looked at in our series on King David. But this short book is not to be underestimated. It comes with a strong punch. And I think that you'll see that Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, as he describes himself, is our servant as he unfolds the Word of God and his purposes to us. So let's give attention to God's Word as we begin in the reading of the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea. Casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 
It is those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare to hear from you, Unfolding in the presence of your Spirit by his power, a few verses in this strong and important letter from your servant Jude, we would ask that you in great measure through the power of that Spirit who alone can open hearts would indeed open ours in this room. Help us to see what it is that we're supposed to see. Help us to believe what it is we're supposed to believe. And help us in faith to obey all that you call us to. Leaning entirely upon you who work within us the salvation that has been born in life within us through the Spirit. Make us more like Christ in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have already stumbled across it there in your bulletin, but I wrote a very short little snapshot of a quick fact sheet on the book of Jude. You'll find it there in your bulletin. It's meant only to ground you in this book that we are embarking on that I can't help but believe is a mystery in terms of its content for some of you. And after having just read through the entire letter of, the Jew, of Jude, it just probably got a little more mysterious, especially in the moment when you heard that Michael contended with the devil over Moses' body. Yes, we'll get there. It's okay. Don't worry. We won't be biting that off today. But I think it is important that you do orient yourself to the book of Jude because it is unusual in terms of its writing and in terms of its organization as an epistle. It is a letter that Jude is writing to a church that is not named. So a congregation that we are not sure of, but who by the content of this letter seems to be a Jewish congregation, a converted Jewish congregation. Many of the references, as we just read through the book of Jude, you probably noticed were Old Testament references. And he spoke of them as if they surely knew all of these things very clearly. So there seems to be, it is an assumption, but it's a good assumption, based upon the strong indications within the text that Jude is writing to a Jewish congregation of whom he himself is from Jewish descent. And so there's a very much a like-mindedness of the cultural background and of the religious context that Jude would have been a part of as he begins to write this letter. But as he writes this letter, he writes as one who's very burdened. He's burdened because he sees the state of the church in whom he is writing, and he is deeply concerned by it. I think some of us, as we look over the state of the church in North America, we have great concerns about what it is that we see. Jude had great concerns over the state of the church in whom he was writing, and he saw the cultural pressures from without, and he saw the fragmentation from within, and he was deeply concerned that they remember who it is that they are in Christ Jesus and get back, as it were, to the basics, to the square one of the Christian faith. 
Now, I believe in so many ways that we cannot rehearse the foundations of the faith enough because we are so forgetful and also because we are so often attacked. And because of those two realities, we need to regularly rehearse what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And even more specifically, we need to drill down into the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ now, within the time in which we live? What are the unique challenges and pressures, and what are the unique stances and actions that we need to be about as the people of God in the 21st century here in North America? I think I can confidently say as I voice that question to you, what sort of people do we need to be? Bible-believing, gospel-trusting people who are wanting to follow Christ. What is required of us, posture and actionably, as we enter into and engage with the culture that is before us? I think I can confidently say we are not to be those who are going to continue to heap and stir up the cultural fires that are already burning in our nation. It's our tendency to enter into the fray of the divisions that are already there, of the polarizations that we see on multiple levels within our nation. I won't take the time to catalog them for them for you. You can do that in your own mind by reading the headlines of today's newspaper. You know exactly where the battle lines are within our own culture. It's highly polarized today and it's often very tempting for Christians to enter into that polarization in the way that we engage with culture and by doing that I think all we do is reap the whirlwind that we're sowing we are not to be the people who enter at that level nor are we to be a people who are this is tempting to ignore the moral and social matters that are taking place across the theater of our country presently there's a tendency, is there not, to just stick your head in the sand and hope it goes away? To just not turn on the news, to not get on Facebook, to not be a part of anything that's going to exacerbate your own heart reactions to what it is that's taking place. There's a tendency to ignore. There's a tendency to jump into the fray and stir things up all the more. I think what we see with Jude is great gospel sanity. When he is looking at a situation that's dealing with tremendous cultural pressures from without to destroy the church and fragmentation from within, he approaches the church in a way that says, here's what your posture ought to be. And here's how you ought to conduct yourself. Here's what would be faithful and righteous behavior in the time in which you live. And I've got some key things that I need to communicate to you as I look at what is unfolding before my very eyes. That's what Jude is saying as he enters into this letter. And I want you to see how he summarizes it right there in verse 3. We'll spend a little bit more time on verse 3 next week because we're just introducing this series today. We're looking just at verses 1 and 2. That's really where we'll situate our time. But I want you to see, he doesn't say, stir up the cultural fires he doesn't say ignore what's going on out there. Notice what he says. He says, verse 3, contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's what we are to be about. That we are to be about a people who are lovingly, graciously, earnestly, and unfailingly contending for the faith that has been delivered to the saints. That's what we are to be about. That's our mission that's our clarion call as it comes to us out of the book of Jude. And what that means is that Jude is actually writing, if I could title this whole book for you in, in terms of its genre, I would call it an, a, a wartime memo. That's what this, this little postcard epistle is. It's a wartime memo. He's looking at the outside and the inside struggles that are happening within the church of Jesus Christ. And he is saying, I want to write to you in such a way so that I'm appealing to you in such a way that you will contend, a very strong word which we'll look at for just a second, that you will contend for the faith in your day. And what this means is, we as individual Christians and as corporately as a body of Christ, we want to conduct ourselves in a manner that is so worthy of the gospel, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, 
that we become a living apologetic for the truthfulness of who Jesus Christ is. Now, this is, this is where I want to challenge you. Did your Facebook post this week present Jesus more believable and beautiful to those who read them? That's the question that's being raised very practically. Did the way that you spoke to your neighbor about what happened present Christ, contend for the beauty of the faith and its sanctity in a culture that's more and more marginalizing and attacking Christianity? Did the way in which we conducted ourselves this week show forth the plausibility and the beautifulness of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's part of what Jude is, is asking. That's part of what he's trying to raise. And part of what he's concerned about and maybe part of what makes it really uncomfortable to ask those kind of questions is we may not know the faith as well as we thought we did. That was the problem in Jude's day. They had lost in much regard the foundations of the faith. And so that he had wanted, notice, this is not the letter he wanted to write. Did you notice that in verse 3? The letter he wanted to write, he says, I was eager to write, you, write to you about our common salvation. I was hoping to just revel in the beauty of the doctrines of the gospel with you. And I was hoping that we could just mutually encourage each other in the things that we already know and believe and grow in them further. But instead, as I look at you, I was compelled to write a wartime memo to you that would appeal to you that you would contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. That we, he seems to indicate, I think share, don't we, church? He's a little concerned about what it is that he sees taking place within the context of the church. Specifically, it's loss of the truth of the fundamentals of the faith. And so he uses a strong word there in verse 3, the word contend. It's a word that's typically used of a military conflict. He wants, as a word, the church to take up arms, both offensively and defensively. He wants us to fight for the faith. He also wants us to defend the faith against its enemies. It's two sides of the same sword. And as I think we study this marvelous book together, I think it'll become clear that both of those notions are really critical to Jude. Both the offensive, we are progressive in the advance of the kingdom of God, not in any forceful, angry, hatred-filled way, but in a way that's putting forth and advancing Christ lovingly, graciously, earnestly, but unfailingly in the work that God has given to us in our day and time, in the culture that we're in. So the question I really want to ask, just as we look at the first two verses today in this important book, is how must we ready ourselves to contend for the faith in our day? How must we ready ourselves to contend for the faith in our day. And to some degree, that question is not merely today's question, it's the series question, but it's, it's starting to answer today that question in verses 1 and 2. How must we ready ourselves to contend for the faith in our day? And I'd like to appeal in two ways to say that we must embrace two things as we ready ourselves to contend for the faith in our day. And the first is... We must embrace the very fact that we are servants of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's the identity marker that's given to us in this text. And we've got to embrace the reality that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I think secondly, how we ready ourselves to be the servants of Jesus Christ in the world, in the way in which he's called us, we have to realize secondly that Jesus Christ is the servant of us. He is the servant of us. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, but let me tell you, He is the servant to us. And in fact, we will never be the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that He's called us to be until we are served by the Lord Jesus Christ, until we experience His service to us. So let's start with we are the servants of Jesus Christ. And maybe we should ask the question, since it's probably not clear as we enter into this uh, text, who is Jude? Who is this guy named Jude? Well, just to note, the word Jude, the name Jude is short. 
for the name Judah or the name Judas. There are five different men in the New Testament who bear the name of Judah or Judas or Jude. Most famously, or we might say infamously, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' own apostles who you know very well, betrayed him. But who is the Jude that is writing this letter? Well, the first thing that he says about himself is that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, language we're going to camp out on in just a minute. But if we're trying to figure out who Jude is, that doesn't help us a whole lot, just the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he notes a sibling. He says, I'm also the brother of James. Now, as far as openings go and salutations in the scripture, it's very unusual for the writer to note a sibling in their salutation. So whatever Jude is thinking, he's thinking it's pretty clear that if you know James, my brother, he's my brother. That's pretty important. And James must be a pretty important person in, in the church at the point in which Jude is writing, which of course raises another question. Who is James? Who is the James that we're talking about here in the book of Jude? Well, to save you the trip down the rabbit hole, I'm going to cut to the chase. The James in this text is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that because of Matthew 13, 55, a text that tells us that Jesus had four brothers and a number of sisters. Notice the text, Matthew 13, 55. All four brothers are named James, Joseph, Simon, and guess, Jude or Judas. Now what's interesting about this is that, is that Jude says he's the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is the brother of James. But if James is the brother of Jesus, then it also means that Jude is the brother of Jesus. You tracking with me? But he doesn't say that. He says he's the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were Jude, and I'm not, but if I were Jude and Jesus was my brother, I think I'd mention it. I think I'd make it extremely clear, especially as I seek to establish authority and credibility with an audience that I am writing to, namely the church, who are followers of, quote-unquote, his brother. It's something that we often do in the introduction of speakers or the introduction in letters where our credibility or authority needs to be in some ways unfolded, you know, so-and-so has so many degrees, they've been awarded so many things, and they're connected to these really wonderful and important people, therefore you should listen to them. You know the spill, that's how it works. And yet as Jude writes this letter, he is in no way interested of connecting himself to the brotherly relation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He instead wants to highlight his utter submission to his brother. Jude is interested not in noting the fact that they have the same mother. Jude is interested in you knowing that Jesus is his Lord. Now that's critically important. To set the posture and the tone for the letter that Jude is writing. He is not using the name of Jesus as a way to promote himself to the hearers who would receive this letter. Instead, he uses his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ to promote Christ and his lordship, putting himself in utter submission and subservience to Jesus, his Lord. Now, I know a couple of things about sibling relationships. I have one. She is two years younger than me. I have four children. I get to see sibling relationships all the day long. It's very unusual for a sibling to call another sibling Lord. It's extremely unusual. In fact, I would say I've never seen it before. The point of this particular text is to note that Jude, as he approaches Jesus and as he begins to unfold Jesus to the church, he wants you to know that the quality of person that he is 
is completely of a different caliber and quality of the person that his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. In fact, he is no merely family relation. It's not the DNA of the bloodline that Jude is really concerned about. It's the acknowledgement that he's on the throne of heaven itself. And that he, as the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, has now completely devoted his life to his brother. Now, let me tell you, when your sibling calls you Lord and devotes their entire life to you, it's about the strongest claim to divinity you can imagine. I, in t- before this week, I would not have turned to the book of Jude to say one of the strongest marks of divinity come through the book of Jude, but I'm convinced now, if a sibling will call you Lord, that's pretty much does it. Jude here wants us to know that he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just any kind of servant. He's the lowest kind of most sold out servant of the Lord Jesus Christ that's imaginable. How do we know that? Because he doesn't use the normal language with reference to servant. The language of diakonos which is the Greek word that's often used for servant. It's where we get the word deacon or diaconant. He uses instead the word doulos, which is the word for slave. Literally, one who is owned by another. One who has no rights of their own. One who is completely subjected to another. Jude sees himself not as a mere servant alongside Christ in a similar cause. He sees himself as owned or possessed by the Lord Jesus Christ through the course of his language. And I think that's really important for us to understand that as we are called as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the very status that we inhabit. We are those who are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it the Apostle Paul who says, I have been crucified with Christ? It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Paul is saying the entirety of his identity is now bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ, so much so that he's not even Paul. He is, and his life is, Christ and Christ alone. Which means that the will of Christ and the purposes of Christ and everything that Christ is about has to become everything that Paul is about. Because he is an utter slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the recognition is Paul tells about us. And he says, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. The price that we have been bought with is the purchased price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As he gave his life for us, He purchased us and we have become his possession. Now as his possession, we submit entirely all of our lives, our money, our time, our resources, everything about who it is that we are, they are completely at Jesus' disposal. And at one whisper of the master's call, we do his bidding. That's the spirit. That's the spirit. In the way Jude begins to speak to this church who's dealing with warfare from without and warfare from within. And he wants us to be that people who acknowledge ourselves to be slaves in just this manner to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question really arises for us, are we seeing ourselves and living in such a way that we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we wholly resigned to His purposes and His will for our life? Or are we constantly, selfishly giving in more to our inclinations of what we want, what we desire? And though we see His will over here and we know what it is He's called us to, we are pushing that away, we are pushing that down, we are trying to live our own sense of the dreamed or charmed life rather than the one in which He has called us unto in obedience? Do you see that moment when you are at the crossroads of committing a sin or obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, of answering his call to share the faith, to do a work of mercy, 
to step out and use your gifts in the way that he has called you for his purposes and the moment where you decide, no, I just want to use them for myself and I want to selfishly indulge the inclinations of my flesh. In that moment, you're wrestling with a question as to whether I am truly a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have I submitted myself as a doulos so much so that I don't find life apart from him? To live is Christ. To live is Christ. That's the spirit of the letter that Jude is writing. Now, this is our call. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hopefully you feel and experience like me conviction on that point. When I think of the decisions that I make, the determinations of how I want to use my time, quote-unquote, my time, how I want to use my money, quote-unquote, my money, how, how I want to... To spend resources, how I want to use gifts, and how I think, well, I'll say yes to that because I think that'll help me in some way because I'm all about me. I'm all about promoting me. When I, when I think along those lines, and this week, mulling through this text, just deeply convicted of realizing what comes under the guise of service for the Lord Jesus Christ is often a backhanded way to promote me. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for that being the Spirit. I would instead write this letter... Jude, the brother of Jesus. <laughs> I wouldn't write the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I would, I'm the brother of Jesus. Hey, I played Tonka trucks with Jesus in the sand when we were growing up. And I think some of that greatness rubbed off on me. Um, Jesus is gone now, but Jude is still here, you know. Do you find that temptation true in your life as well? Now, you, you mask what looks like service to Christ, but really it's a backhanded way to promote self. And you're measuring costs so that you don't lose your platform or your, you don't lose your name. You don't lose what it is that's most precious to you. Whatever that is, you know what it is. And the Spirit of the Lord will share that with you. He'll reveal that to you. Some of you right now, He's doing that. And you know what it is that you're holding on to that is yours. You don't want to give that to Christ. I don't want to give that up to him. I can assure you that what's on your mind right now is exactly what he wants you to give to him. Exactly what he wants you to give to him. It's his already, by the way. But it's, it's better and it's, it's gracious of him to give that to you and now it would be the right thing for you to give it to him. Okay? And that's what it means. Now... What Jude, I believe, is saying, by saying this, he's saying this is the kind of part, if you want to contend for the faith, if you want to make Jesus attractive and beautiful and believable before the mind's eye, by living faithfully into the truth of the gospel, you're going to have to inhabit a posture that's actionable around this word slave and servant of Christ. You cannot expect the world to be wowed by the gospel when you do it the same way the world does it. You just can't expect that. It's actually a cheap imitation of what the world often does better. But we're not playing the game that the world is playing. We're not in the kingdom that the world is in. This is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We play by His rules. We play His way. We play for His purposes. And that means that we sacrifice and we let the chips fall where they may. Trusting the Spirit of the Lord to do His bidding and His work in the world. We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the question is, friends, honestly, how can we become this people? How can we become a people who are marked more by the identification that Jude gives us here as being a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, you need to ask your, yourself this question. Is it beautiful to you, the idea of being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it capturing you yet? Is the idea of being completely resigned to the will and the purposes of Jesus thrilling to no end to you? That's what it is for Jude. And Jude says that becomes critically important to the contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. It's first got to be beautiful. If it's not there yet, begin to pray for that. Pray for the Lord to renew your mind, to open up your heart to the beauty of what it means to lose yourself in Christ. One of the great gifts of the Christian life, one of the great gifts of the gospel is self-forgetfulness 
and complete obsession with Jesus. That's it. Pray for that. Pray that the Lord would grant that. Now, if he, if he begins to grant that, how is that going to happen where that begins to nurture and tend your life to where you go into Monday morning with the posture and with the spirit of being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? How is that going to happen? Well, let me tell you, if we're going to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to see that Jesus Christ has been a very faithful servant to us. You've got to experience the fullness of Jesus' service to us. And I think that's exactly where Jude takes us at the latter half of verse 1. When he turns his attention away from himself to the recipients of the letter, and he tells us particularly who it is he's writing to. Because he's not just writing to anybody. He's writing to a particular audience. I want you to see the particular audience he's writing to. He's writing to those who are called. That's the language that he uses. He's writing to those who are called. Well, who are the called? Well, then he describes them. They are the beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's who they are. That's who Jude's writing to. The called is the recipients of the letter. The loved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, is the descriptor, the modifier of who the called are in this text. So here's what this means. The called are not, then, those who have merely heard the gospel. They're, that's not who he's speaking to. You go, oh, okay, well, I've heard the gospel, so I must be in the called. No. The kind of called he's speaking to here is what theologians like to call the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. What this is, is when the gospel is preached, many hear it. But only some respond to it by faith and then receive Christ and rest upon him alone for their salvation. Only some do that. Many are called, Jesus says, few are chosen. John chapter 6, Jesus says, you will not draw near to me unless my Father draws near to you. That's what Judas is saying. He's saying, I'm calling out to those, I'm writing to those who have spiritual ears, who don't merely have the facts of the gospel, who have sat under the gospel, who've worn the pew, who've been raised in a Christian family. I'm interested in those who have savingly embraced the Lord Jesus Christ and who are now utterly committed to him as the called because they are the ones who are beloved in God the Father. They know what it's like to live as a people who are loved. So those are who I'm writing to. I'm writing to that group. And, and we know very well in this room that there are those who we know who have heard the gospel and then later fell away. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 13 that the seed is cast and it falls along the path and the bird eats it up and then some falls on the stony ground and it shoots up at the cares of the world choke it out and then there are those that fall on the thorny soil and then there's worldliness that chokes it out and he tells us there are many different recipients of the gospel but there's one good soil that receives the seed of the gospel and you know what the evidence of true reception of Christ is fruitfulness that lasts now that's the point of Jude Jude is saying those who are beloved in God the Father, who are the truly called, they are what? Kept for Jesus. Now this is what I really love about Jude. I love that he says it that way, kept for Jesus. Because what he's noting is the power of God in the keeping. We're going to talk later in the book of Jude. In fact, a good portion of the book of Jude is going to describe the endurance and the perseverance of a believer and is going to talk about human effort and the importance of exerting human effort in contending for the faith. But here at the very opening of the book of Jude, the focus is not on human effort. The focus is upon God's effort. There is this thing called perseverance of the saints and there is this thing called preservation of the saints. We're talking about preserving of the saints. Do you know why it is that you're a Christian? Because God has invaded your life and radically converted you and changed you from the inside out. Do you know if you maintain your profession and faith? Do you know whose credit that is to be given to? God. 
Do you know if you make it to the finish line and collapse into the arms of Christ, who did the running? Jesus did. Jesus did. He carries you. He's kept you for himself. That's the beauty of this. He's the one doing the work. Now, it doesn't mean it's not going to feel like work for you and for me. And doesn't it feel like work? But doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us that he works harder than any in the work of ministry, yet not I, but the grace of God in me? What is Paul saying? He understands that the animus, the energy and the strength for the following of Christ is not a power that we whip ourselves into inspiration over one day a week in a gathering. It's a power through the Holy Spirit that motivates us and drives us to the finish line every single day of our lives. And we realize without the sustaining grace of his power working in us, we would never make it. As Jude writes to the called, he said, I want you to know it's the called who bask in the belovedness of the love of the Father and those in whom Jesus has kept for himself. And you know what Jude is saying? Sort of underneath the text, but in the spirit of those who have heard this letter, he is writing to a church where there are those who have bought into false teaching and are drifting away from the profession of Christ. He is writing to a church who's experiencing cultural pressures from the outside. And those pressures are ultimately giving in and there are people who are leaving the faith. And Jude says, I'm not writing to them. I'm writing to the called. Who come the strains from without and come the fragmentation from within will stay the course. Because God preserves them by His grace, and they will be at the end of time the very apple of Jesus' eye as He gazes at them as a trophy of His grace. And He beholds us, and the fullness of His eye is filled with the glory of His people, and He will take, as He does even now, utter delight and pleasure in what it is that He has created. He says, that's who I'm writing to. That's who I'm writing to. Now the question is, is that who we are? Is that who we are? Are we the people who are the beloved of the Father in whom is kept for Jesus? Are we the ones who have heard that calling? Are we embracing it? Is the manifest fruit in the direction of our life given to the followership of Christ? Because the day is coming within our own context where those who have saddled up next to Christianity because it was culturally comfortable we'll find that it is not culturally comfortable anymore. And when that day comes, there'll be, it'll be very clear what soil that the seed fell on. It'll be very clear what is weed and what is tear. It'll be very clear those who heard the external call of the gospel but never actually embraced savingly the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit. And friends, here's what I want to tell you. God's grace is that He has put you under the preaching of His Word today. And he has preserved you through the course of his life and made himself manifest to you today. And he has done it for many of you for decades on end as you've been following Christ. Don't take this precious gospel for granted. Don't take this precious gospel for granted because here, if you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you know it when you're willing to take risks for him. And you know it when you're willing to pay costs for him. And that seems eerily close for many of us in this room. Friends, a day may be here soon where you're losing jobs for the sake of Christ. The day may come where the freedom to be able to unfold the gospel in a public setting like this and speak against certain evils that the Bible speaks of will indeed be hushed in the land. And the question will be, will we speak faithfully still, lovingly, graciously, earnestly, but unfailingly? for the cause of Christ in the world. Could it be that part of God's plan of advancing His kingdom in the world is the loss of your job? Could it be that part of God's kingdom plan of advancing His kingdom in North America is the removal of a preacher? 
I don't know. But we might live long enough to know. Contending for the faith in our own day, that's the way it felt in Jude's day. Those were the struggles, and we need to be alerted to them. Don't need to hear this as skies falling. Don't need to hear this as exaggeration. You need to read and be aware of how the wind is blowing. And then recognize that most of your New Testament, it was far worse. And we have a wartime memo to help us walk and what it means to contend for the faith in our time. He concludes this this opening salutation with just a blessing. I love this because he can't get out of the first two verses without blessing the audience. And he just says, may the mercy, may the peace, and may the love of God multiply to you. Now, I just I take such great comfort. I wish we could spend time talking about these. I won't spend long. just want you to see that he, he mentions these three, mercy, peace, and, and love. He's already mentioned beloved in the Father, He's already mentioned this, this idea of, of calling and the mercy of God. This is the first entrance of the language of peace. But in this blessing, he in a sense capsules what I think he knows this church is going to need in greater measure. That's what that multiplication means, in abundance in the days to come. Because as servants of the Lord, they are going to fail in their serving. No matter how committed you feel right now, don't you feel often committed on Sunday mornings to like, this week will be different, you know? Like those kind of commitments, you're going to strike out. No matter how committed that you feel, and that's good, I'm encouraged by that. The proof is in the pudding, though, over the time of change. No matter how committed we feel, there will be failings. And here's what's wonderful about our God in Jude in this context, is promising and blessing and praying for future grace to cover the failings before they happen. May mercy be abundant in you. As he looks at that church, he goes, oh, may mercy be abundant to that church. You know, he says the same thing as God looks at us this morning. He knows your individual lives. He knows what your week's going to look like before it unfolds. And he knows the ways in which you're going to fall. And he's already made provisions in his mercy to cover it by his grace. May that mercy be multiplied to you. Now, if that mercy is multiplied to you, what's the effect of that mercy? Peace in your heart is the effect. That, do you feel the peace and the comfort just knowing like, oh man, on Wednesday I'm going to really mess it up so bad. I don't even know how I'm going to mess it up, but I'm just going to totally mess it up. And, it's going to have, and his mercy is already providing for that. And it's already giving me almost preemptive peace for what is there. It's incredibly encouraging. And then what does that just, just inflame and, and blow your mind to say, how loving is our God? How loving is our God. May his mercy be multiplied to you. May his peace be shed abroad in your heart. May his love just completely explode in your mind's eye. And then all of a sudden you are wondering, how do we get the spirit of servanthood to really overtake our heart? That's it. When you begin to see that his mercy extends so far beyond your failings. And his peace is given to you in the midst of your failings. And you see the magnanimity of his love that covers the multitude of your sins. All of a sudden is not the proper response from a heart that's received that reality. How might I serve that king? How might I serve that savior? That's the spirit that begins to rise up within a believer who can see with the eyes of faith through the power of the Spirit. And let me tell you, there will not be a lot of second-guessing and questioning and concerning and hand-wringing when those realities are real to God's people. And there will be clarity on what the contending for the faith really requires in our age when that truth begins to dawn on us in greater and more profound measure, 
would you enter into prayer with me that the Lord would explode our hearts and our souls with that reality as we walk through this book of Jude? Pray with me in that. Let's enter in together that the Lord would simply overwhelm us with the measure of his mercy and his peace and his love so much so that it would inform the service that we're called to in the world. I think that if that were to happen, you'd begin to see a whole army of believers in Christ marching to the tune of the kingdom that is not of this world. And the drumbeat of the march of the kingdom that is not of this world is one that is so overwhelmingly effective and powerful through the Spirit that it has the potential of turning the world upside down, which is to say right side up. So what happened when we saw the gospel marshaled throughout the book of Acts, as Paul went from town to town with the fellow servants preaching the gospel, and it has the same power today to accomplish it in our context. Have you lost hope? The days are bright for the life of the church. Nations come and go. Kings rise and fall. Governments have golden eras and then they have not so golden eras. The church is this perpetually defeated looking thing that always outlives its victors because the power that controls and animates this church is not from you or me. It's from God and the power of His gospel. The best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you prepare our hearts to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints and that we do it in a way that is befitting and in keeping with the character of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We want to learn more about that in the weeks to come. And so we ask now as you have laid this beautiful call before us and you've given us incredible comfort and hope, we now with confidence anticipate living for you this week. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring a multitude of opportunities to make yourself known. And that you would, contrary to our typical choices... Train us in the Spirit to choose the right path of your command in obedience rather than the selfish inclinations of our hearts. And show yourself mighty to save. And we will come back next week inclining our ear yet again to hear more of what it means to be a follower of you. Bless us. We ask it in Jesus' name.